Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I learned generosity from my parents. Uh, My parents, uh, both of them, are extremely giving people of uh, all of their resources. They hold them with really open hands. I remember, in particular, when I was growing up, my dad's willingness to loan out his stuff, you know, whether it was yard tools or mechanical tools or his mower or vehicle, he was willing to loan things out. Uh, But frequently, what he loaned out would come back in worse condition. And uh, I remember in particular one incident, I I don't remember what was loaned out, I just remember it was a neighbor came over, we were standing in the yard, and the neighbor asked to borrow something from my dad, and uh, my dad knew that that he owned the same item himself, and and so my dad couldn't resist, he said, well, I I thought you had one of your own, and the man literally said, he said, yes, but mine is brand new and I don't want to damage it. And, uh, you know, like, wow, okay, I can't believe you'd actually say that, but um, I think there's a lesson to be learned here. My dad didn't didn't miss the opportunity. See, the guy didn't really care about someone else's stuff because it was someone else's stuff. He didn't own it, so he didn't really care that much about it. And I remember my dad telling me, not just in that incident, but over and over and over again, if you borrow something from somebody, you return it. And you return it in better condition than you borrowed it. If you borrowed it and it was dirty, when you turn it back, it's going to be clean. If you break it, you fix it, or you replace it, and you replace it with a better item if you can. Why? Because it's not yours. Because it belongs to somebody else, and they trusted you. And you need to honor that trust. That's the biblical principle of stewardship. The biblical principle tells us that actually we own nothing, that everything that we have, everything that we are belongs to God. We owe it all to him, but he has entrusted us with these resources to use on his behalf. That's the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to read with me beginning in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, Let a man regard us in this manner. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Paul says accountability is inherent in stewardship. And stewards, faithful stewards, expect that they will be accountable for the stewardships that that they are given. Notice in verse 6, Paul writes, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively apply to myself and Apollos for your sakes. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. I think chapter 4, verse 6 is kind of the interpretive key for this entire section, reaching back into uh, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4. Paul's point is this. Paul is the greatest theologian the church had ever known, probably that the church will ever know. Apollos was the most eloquent preacher at that time, and Paul says, you view us as leaders... But here's how we view ourselves. We're servants, we're stewards, we're not superstars. And if the leaders of the church regard themselves like this, how much more should you regard yourself in this way? We are stewards. And that's it. That's all we are. In fact, Paul applies four labels to himself and to Apollos and consequently to us. 
The first is we are servants. Verse 1, we are servants of Christ. Now, this word can refer to an assistant, a helper, an attendant in the court. Literally, it is an under rower. It's the person who sat down in the galley, not the captain who stood on top and barked out orders, but the person who, who sat in the galley and rowed. Paul says we are under rowers. That's what we are. Second, he says we are managers. The word is literally uh, uh, from a word that is oikos namos. It means the, the, the law or the management of the household. This was the chief servant in a home. So it's the servant who was responsible for the master's fields and the master's finances and the rest of the master's slaves. In other words, it's, it's one who didn't own anything himself, but he was responsible for everything owned by the master. Paul says, we are managers. We are not owners. We are managers. We are stewards. We're not superstars. Nothing belongs to us. Uh, from time to time, I remind my children of this principle as well, because I'll Try to walk into their rooms and they'll say, no, dad, that's my room. Stay out of my room. Stay out of my stuff. At which point in time, I remind them, I bought your room. I own your room. I bought your stuff. I own your stuff. It's all mine. I'm just letting you borrow it for a little bit of time. Right? I don't know if that's great parenting or not, but you know, it, when I get a little frustrated, I just kind of have to lay down the boundaries. No, I own it. But I let you stay here. Turn to chapter 6. Verse 19, Paul reminds the Corinthian believers with a rhetorical statement, rhetorical question. He says, don't you know, you do know, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Paul says, look, it's not just that your stuff belongs to God. You belong to God. All that you have, all that you are, because when Jesus hung on the cross and died, he died for your sins. He purchased you for God. When you believe that, you belong to him. Although you already belong to him because God is the creator of all things. He gave you your body. He gave you your gifts and your talents, your abilities, your resources. He gave you absolutely everything. You belong to God. And stewards are accountable. Third word he uses is the word that we translate uh, deacons. Chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? We are, we're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Uh, a servant is an intermediary, and an assistant, an aide, or sometimes a, a waiter or a waitress. You remember the first deacons of the church, that's literally what they did. They waited tables. Paul says, we're the leaders of the church. We're the most prominent leaders, the most well-known leaders. And this is what we are. We're under rowers. We're stewards. We're managers. We're table waiters. This is what we do. Fourth term, we are laborers. Chapter 3, verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Paul's building an analogy here, and he says we're farmhands. You're the field, and we're just working in the field. We're farmhands. We're, We're servants. We're managers. We're deacons. We're farmhands. And then the word that he is uh, most uh, famous for using is this. We're slaves. We're just slaves. We don't claim rights. When people treat us as servants. We expect that. 
Because we are, we are slaves of Christ, and consequently we are slaves of you. We are here to serve you. This is how you lead. This is how you serve within God's kingdom. Remember that uh, Jesus had an interaction with his disciples. As they wanted to be great. And Jesus does not suppress that desire. He doesn't say, well, shame on you for wanting to be great. He does not say that. He says, I understand you want to be great. That's natural. That's normal. Let me tell you how to actually be great in the right way and at the right time. Yes, I understand human beings. You, you, you were made in my image. You want to have impact. You want to have significance in life. You want to be great. I get that. But let me help you understand true greatness. In the Gentile world, in the world outside of God's authority, there's a, a, a steep hierarchy And those who are over others, they lord it over. They are autocratic. They exercise their power and their dominion, and they make it known. I'm the superior. You're the subordinate. He says, they lord it over those who are given to their charge. He says, that's not the way it works among you. If you want to be great, become the least. You want to become powerful, become weak. Become a servant. He says, follow my example. I am among you as one who serves. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want true greatness? Then bend low and serve. That's greatness in God's world. That's how it works. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Paul says, we are examples. Myself, Apollos, the apostles. And I think that God has exhibited apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed. We are roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul says, this is who your leaders are. This is who your leaders are. And that is not how the world thinks. Remember, Paul's objective in writing this letter is to get them to stop going with the flow of the culture and to turn around and to move upstream. Want greatness? Then follow the example of your leaders. This is who we are. A few years ago, I read a, a book. It's called Good to Great. It's a management leadership book. It was very popular at the time. The author was Jim Collins, and he was studying uh, organizations that were good organizations, solid, but who became really great within their industry. And in the introduction of the book, he makes uh, this observation. He says, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good-to-great leaders seem to have come from Mars. (laughs) Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. It's shocking to a secular researcher, very biblical. I do want you to notice that first phrase, though. He says, we were surprised, we were shocked, really. Why? Because they expected something different. They expected that great people tell everyone how great they are. 
And they're very powerful and they're very boisterous and they're, 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 they're uh, more autocratic and dominating in their style of leadership. We expected that if a company went from good to great, boy, we would see that person on the cover of Forbes. They would be writing books. They would be prominent. So we were shocked. We were stunned. That's what the world expects a great leader to look like. Let me give you a, a few of the more memorable quotes that I have uncovered through time of this kind of leadership. Muhammad Ali, one of my favorites. I want everyone to bear witness. I am the greatest. I'm the greatest thing that ever lived. Just in case you thought the category only included boxers, right? Uh, John Lennon had another very famous quote. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We are more popular than Jesus now. It's not confined just to men. Courtney Love, I'm not a woman. I'm a force of nature. (laughs) Wow. Brian Wilson, he's a a pitcher for the uh, Dodgers. He said, my IQ is 188. End of discussion. It's been proven. Certified genius. I don't know. Question that. Kanye West, one of my favorite quotes. My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. (laughs) Yeah, it, it could go on and on. Actually, I dumped about 12 more quotes at the bottom of my notes, and I thought, you get the point, right? Uh, you know, what's, what's interesting, I thought, it doesn't really shock us that, that they would think that. It kind of shocks us sometimes that they would be bold enough to say it. They wouldn't be a little embarrassed to, to say that. But uh, we have come to expect that. that. That is the world's form of leadership. It doesn't matter if it's sports or entertainment or politics or academia. Pride is exalted. Pride is expected. Paul says, no, Uh, in fact, we are uh, just stewards. We're just managers. We're not owners. Chapter 4, verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Paul says, it is required. This is the nature of stewardship that we will be evaluated Because we don't own what's been entrusted to us. And so we're evaluated for the stewardship. Jesus talked a lot about stewardships. Uh, He talked a lot about about slaves and masters and used that as an analogy for our relationship with God. One of the parables that Jesus told was in Luke chapter 16. He said this, There was a rich man who had a manager, same word here, steward, And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, this is what I hear about you. Give an accounting of your management or give an accounting of your stewardship. If you're a steward, then you're accountable. Expect that. Christians, we are stewards of the resources God has given us. We should expect that we will be held accountable. And our accountability, as we looked at last week, is at the judgment seat of Christ. That's where Jesus examines us. Turn back to chapter 3. Verse 11, remember there are two outcomes, two possible outcomes at the judgment seat of Christ, reward and loss. Chapter 3, verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. 
If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. You recall, what is the reward at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, there are at least, at least three categories of reward. One is praise. To stand before the creator of the universe and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You invested well. You used your stewardship wisely. Praise. He gathers all of the hosts of heaven around him, all of the angels, and your name is proclaimed. Well done. You lived well. You chose wisely. There's praise. There's people. Those that you invested in standing with you and sharing with you in that praise because together you remain faithful and executed your stewardships well. The people surrounding you. There is rulership. And throughout the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation talks about reward a lot and it talks about rulership. Jesus will return. He will establish his kingdom on earth. And it is in his intention that his people, the bride of Christ, the church, will rule and reign and exercise authority with him. It's a promise. Don't feel guilty about wanting the reward. Right? I often hear Christians say, mm, gosh, you know, that just doesn't sound right. I should just want to do everything just because I'm, I'm grateful and I love Jesus. And, you know, I do agree. That's probably the highest motivation. However, God gives us lots of different motivations. And sometimes reward is one of the motivations that stirs us up. I want to read to you from C.S. Lewis's short uh, sermon he gave. It's called The Weight of Glory. And one of my favorite pieces of, of writing that he did. He said this. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. And it is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. And then he gives an illustration. He says, money is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. See what he's saying? If you, you really love someone, the reward is marriage, and you get to be with that person. Just the two of you. That's the reward of love. If you marry someone for money, that's mercenary because... Money is not the proper reward of love. There's a disconnect. Gives another illustration. This is a general who fights well in order to get a, a status or wealth from fighting. He is mercenary. But a general who fights for victory and a just cause for his country's honor and safety, for example, he is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation? See what he's saying? That's natural. It's normal to long for the proper reward. And God promises us reward for executing our stewardships wisely. Reward is a proper motivation. But you know what? So is fear. So is fear. Read with me chapter 3, verse 15. He says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. When your stewardship is evaluated, there are two possible outcomes, reward and loss. Loss is not clearly the loss of your salvation. He says, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The fire tests the quality of each man's work. It's not the man that's burned up. Remember, it is the work. It's the life. If somebody invests in things that don't last, that are not attached to God's eternal kingdom, then that life is placed before God. He examines it and it's gone. It's loss. Loss of opportunity. Loss of praise. 
Lots of that chance before the, to stand before the, the creator of the universe and hear him say, great job. You're so very wise in what you invested in. Well done, good and faithful servant. There is an, a moment of evaluation after our, our brief, short lives in which we will be evaluated, and it will be reward or loss. And, you know, sometimes reward is a great motivation for us. Sometimes the fear of loss or discipline is a motivation. I see that in the lives of my kids. Sometimes it's the carrot, you know, the hope of, of, of going out for ice cream or some other reward or, or praise that they enjoy. Sometimes what motivates them is the fear of discipline. At different points in time, sometimes they genuinely really are just grateful that I've given them a room and food, you know, where they get room and board. No, they just get love and they're grateful. There's just gratitude. And I do love those moments because they seem so very pure. But at times other things motivate. The point to remember is this. We're not owners, we're stewards. And as stewards, our lives will be evaluated. Christians, it matters how we live. Not because we earn our salvation. Not because we're afraid we could lose our salvation. It matters because we represent Jesus Christ on this earth and he has given us great resources to invest. So, Paul says this. Invest wisely. Read with me again chapter 4, verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. In other words, the the standard evaluation is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's this, faithfulness. Were you faithful? Verse three, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself for I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise praise will come to him from God. Now, Paul, Paul is not saying, hey, get out of my business and stop trying to evaluate me. I don't care what you think. Okay, that's, that's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is this. None of us is really qualified to evaluate one another. You're not qualified to evaluate me. No, no human court, he says, is qualified to evaluate me. In fact, he says, I'm really not even qualified to evaluate myself. But he says, that doesn't get me off the hook. I'm just stating a principle. I can't evaluate myself because I can't ultimately even see into my own heart. And what God is looking at is my heart. And the problem with us evaluating the, the value or the impact of someone else and their stewardships is this. We evaluate based on the wrong criteria, people. We, we, are, we have become so affected by our culture that we, we just look at the wrong stuff. And we look at the wrong stuff. For example, remember when Jesus was in the temple and people came in to give and a rich man came in and he threw in lots of money. According to tradition, probably there was a brass receptacle and he put in coins. And so as he's pouring in his coins, boy, it's just going clang, 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 clang. Everybody has to stop and look and go, wow, that brother is putting in a lot of money. Right? That's why there's a little pad on the bottom of our offering plate so people don't look at you, right, when your coins... No. That just, idea just popped in my mind from somewhere. Uh, so they're looking, they're going, man, how generous, how amazing. And then a poor widow walks up and everybody turns away. 
Most of them don't even see the fact that she has put in a couple coins. Just goes clink, clink. And she says, hey, principal here, I want you to notice something. She gave more. And the disciples say to themselves, in what universe did that woman give more than that man? And Jesus says, in my universe. Because this is how I evaluate things. She gave out of her poverty. He gave out of his surplus. She gave out of her heart because she loves me. He gave because he wanted to be noticed by people. I really don't need his stuff or her stuff. I want their hearts. I own everything. When you give, you should give out of your heart because you love and you want to serve and sacrifice. See, Paul's saying, we don't see that. We don't see what's going on. So we're not qualified to evaluate faithfulness. Not outcomes, not ability, not time served. And not outcomes. Not what's produced in your life that other people can observe. That's not how God evaluates. You know, when pastors go to conferences and they meet one another for the first time, first time, you know what they ask each other? Okay, nice, nice to meet you, your name, so forth. How big is your church? How many people attend? And what's your budget? I know, it's, it's very disillusioning for you to hear that. But, uh, you know, pastors are made of flesh, just like everybody else. So they, they, there's this quantitative, let me see where I rank. As we're lining up here, I want to know, am I at the front or the back of the line or in the middle? That's not, that's not how I evaluate Faithfulness. God looks at the heart. Not ability. Not ability. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Another parable about stewardship. Jesus says it was just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves. And he entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And then he went on his journey. I'm, I'm good at some things and I'm not good at others. And God knows that because God made me just like he made me. And he knew that from all of eternity. And so I'm not evaluated based on things that God has not entrusted to me. Nor are you. Nor on time served. Some of you may have come to Christ very early, you know, four or five years old, some much later in life. That's that's really not relevant. Jesus told another parable about a landowner who goes into the marketplace to get people to work in his field, goes out early in the morning, he says, I'll give you a denarius. It's a day's wage. But then as he's Going through the day, he realizes he needs more and more labor, so he keeps going out every few hours. Finally, he goes out, and there's about an hour of work left, and he says, come into my field and work, and I'll give you what's appropriate. So these people work one hour, and when they come for their wage, they get a whole day's wage. They get a whole denarius. And then he gets all the way back to the folks who've been working the entire day, and he gives them a denarius, and they're mad. Why? Because their view of God is that he's, he's, he, he does contracts, and he's kind of stingy and so forth. And he says, look... As I'm good. And if I want to be good and generous with what is mine, why are, why are you angry at me for being good? Don't you understand? I love to give. So you came into this whole process of living for Jesus. You really kind of understood it later. Okay. You came in early. doesn't matter. Think about today. And what are you going to do today and for the rest of your life? And know this about God. He is good and he is generous and he loves to reward. He rewards us for the things that he does through us by his strength and his power. That is incredible grace. And what is his standard? Faithfulness. What will you do now, today, from this point forward? Read with me again chapter 25 of Matthew. 
verse 14. It's just like the man about to go on a journey. He called his own slaves to himself. He entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. Then he went on his journey. Uh, It's unfortunate that my translation uh, translates that talents because then we think about stuff you can do, right? But a talent is a unit of measurement. In the Old Testament, it was about 75 pounds, right? 75 pounds. So one guy gets 10 talents, another five talents, another just gets one or two talents. You're talking about uh, normally silver or gold. So the one who just got a little bit got about 75 pounds of silver. That's a lot. His point is, he richly blesses each of these slaves with a stewardship. He richly, every single one of these stewards has been richly, richly blessed. No matter what their abilities are, these, these men have a lot of resources with which they can invest. So what should they do with it? What should they invest? What is, how does this translate into our lives? It translates in this way. It may not be silver and gold, but you have been richly blessed. With what? Well, turn back to chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, For who regards you as superior, what do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 4 is everything that you are and everything that you have all belongs to God and all of it can be invested for eternity. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That means everything and everyone belongs to God and everything that you have and everything that you are belongs to God and can be invested for eternity. Let me give you six specifics, okay? Let me give you six specifics. First, invest God's gift of relationships. The relationships you have with people are a gift from God to you. Chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Paul says, look, we have, a, we have a unique relationship. God appointed me an apostle to plant the church, and I came to you church first. And there may be others who have come along, and they're tutors, and they're encouraging you along in your faith. But we have a unique relationship. Don't you understand that? You know what, men and women? You have unique relationships. No one has the set of relationships that you have. And maybe coworker or friend or brother or sister, or you may be a teacher, an instructor, or a boss. Those relationships are stewardships from God, and no one else has those. How will you use those relationships? Do you see those relationships as as an entrustment from God? Unique. No one else has them. Second, invest God's gift of opportunities. Chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. God gave something to each one. Sometimes Paul will call that a a door. So there were doors that opened to me and there were doors that closed to me. 
closely related to relationships. They're relationships that God opened up and made possible. There were events and experiences. And you know what? Some of those experiences for Paul were really hard. They were hardships and suffering. And after he had gone through them, he's able to speak out of his suffering into someone else's life. He says, I understand that was a stewardship. Sometimes they were great blessings and they were, they were wonderful experiences and he could speak out of the blessings into someone else's life. But the point is, he was always aware of the fact that what he was living through in that moment was a stewardship. Okay? Relationships, opportunities. Third, talents. By which I mean the English word, talents. Stuff that you are good at. Things that you really enjoy and love to do. Do you know... God made you. He he wired you a certain way. And it was in his intention that you would take the things that you're good at and the things that you really enjoy to do and and use those to invest for eternity. I've I've known uh, men who love woodworking and they've used their woodworking to uh, assist a neighbor in a project and show them sacrificial love from Jesus or, or take young men or boys from the community in around the neighborhood. I've seen men do that. I've seen women use sewing or or cooking. Quilting, I had a friend who uses quilting as an evangelistic opportunity and a fellowship opportunity. Uh, I know of a businessman in Austin who owns a, a, a mechanic's garage. And once a month, they open up their garage and they do free oil changes for every single mom. So single moms come in, they change their oil, and as they're waiting to get their oil changed, it may, may take 10 or 15 minutes, or if there's a line, it may take a little longer. And they sit with them, and they pray with them. Sometimes they get to share the gospel with them. They ask if there are other needs that they can meet. Oil changes for Jesus. <laughs> anything you love to do, anything you enjoy, you can do it with someone else. You can invest in a relationship through that opportunity. I've got a group of guys and, and their wives, actually, both, who they love to ride motorcycles. And so uh, periodically they'll take a Sunday off. I'm not for sure if it's like once a month or every six weeks. They don't come to Grace. They ride to another church. They have lunch together, they enjoy fellowship, and then they bless the church that they've gone to. Bless them with their presence and bless them financially. Ride motorcycles for Jesus. Change oil for Jesus. Sew for Jesus. Cut a board for Jesus. Hey, talents. Talents that you have. I've used this illustration before, but you may have forgotten, so I want to remind you. You should know this really well. The the first person in the Bible who is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit, you remember who it is? First person ever filled with the Holy Spirit. His name is Bezalel or Bezalel. He wasn't a preacher or a teacher or a Bible study leader. He was a craftsman. He worked with silver and gold and bronze and wood, and he was filled with the Spirit so that he could make utensils for worship. It doesn't matter what you do or what you love to do. It can be used for the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Peter wrote, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold, the multifaceted, like a diamond, God's grace. doesn't look the same in your life as it does in mine. Here he's talking about spiritual gifts. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. Fourth, invest God's gift of treasure which includes money. It also includes your stuff. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where thieves cannot break in or steal, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And what does God care about? Your earthly treasure? No, he cares about your heart. Let your heart be there. 
And your heart follows where you invest. You invest deeply in something, you pay attention to that thing. So invest. As it said, can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead, right? Can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can invest in things financially that last forever. I love this quote by David Livingstone, a missionary to Africa. He said, I place no value on anything I have or may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interests of the kingdom, it shall be given away or kept only as by giving or keeping. I shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. Wow, isn't that great? So I look at my stuff and I say, should I keep it? Should I give it away? Well, how can it best influence and affect the kingdom of God? Fifth, invest God's gift of time. The one resource you can never get more of is time. Seneca, Roman philosopher and statesman said, we are always complaining that our days are few and acting as though there would be no end. Benjamin Franklin, dost thou love life? Then do not squander time for it is the stuff life is made of. And Henry David Thoreau, as if you could kill time without injuring eternity. And what struck me about each of these three quotes uh, that are on my favorite quote list is none of these men had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but they got the principle that time is valuable. And time is a resource that you cannot get more of. You're only given a finite amount of it, so invest it. How do people feel most loved by us when we give them time? And we're not impatient and waiting to get away and trying to get away and in the conversation, but we're focused on them and what they need, time. Sixth, invest God's gift of truth. Read with me again chapter 4, verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as under rowers, as stewards, managers, not owners, not superstars, of what? Of the mysteries of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel, right? The mystery of God is the gospel. That God would take on human flesh, and in so taking on human flesh would be able to die, and not just die a normal, natural death, but to die a cruel death on a cross after suffering to pay the penalty for our sins. That is a mystery That cannot be understood apart from the illuminating work of the Spirit. And Paul says we we are stewards of this thing. We're managers of this incredible, beautiful resource. Patrick Henry said this right before he died. He said, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There's one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had faith in Jesus... And I had not given them a single shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not faith in Jesus, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. I got very specific, and I listed out a lot of stuff because I wanted to remind you of a very simple truth. No matter who you are, no matter what your background or what your history, you are rich. God has given you vast resources with which you can invest in things that last forever. So I want you to think about one question as we close, and that is this. What are the stewardships God has entrusted to you? I want to give you a few moments silently before the Lord and ask God to speak to you. What are the stewardships that God has given to you, and what are you going to do with them this week? This week. All right, let's take a few moments silently before the Lord.
pray with me, would you? Lord, we, uh, we are a people who are richly blessed. We, though we may not personally be wealthy, uh, we live in a land that is rich with your blessings. And we as a church, we as believers here in, in College Station at Grace Bible Church are, are richly blessed. We are inundated with your blessings. We are inundated with things to share. We celebrate that with thanksgiving, God. We give you thanks. And we just want to say, as your people gathered together collectively this morning, we are yours. I pray for each one, myself included, as we're gathered here together this morning, that our response would be to invest in some way and that you've been challenging us in our spirits uh, to understand what that is. And so we just want to collectively say, Lord, we, we offer ourselves to you this morning. And with thanksgiving, to you for your son Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Pat Coyle. I serve as the human resources pastor. I serve your staff and your missionaries and uh, it's a pleasure to do that. And I've, I've served the years uh, here at Grace in these areas of, of giving people an opportunity to connect. And we find from time to time as we conclude a service that you, you may have been praying, Lord, I've got, I've got this, these blessings, I've got this desire, I want to invest, but I don't really know how. And sometimes it's just helpful to take a few minutes to point out to you some of the opportunities right here in the church body that are just, just full of opportunity for you. And so we wanted to bring a couple of those uh, to you this morning as we wrap up. Uh, investing wisely in relationships and opportunities. We have a couple of things going on right now that, that represent an opportunity to do that. First, adopt an Aggie. Um, my family, uh, I grew up at Grace. My family, my parents actually began the Adopt an Aggie program. And every semester, new students come and they sign up. And uh, they're looking for an opportunity to, while they're here at A&M, to be a part of a Christian family. And we had a blessing as a, as a family as I was growing up of having Aggies in our home. And we still stay in touch with those folks. They're great relationships. We've discipled, we've encouraged, they've discipled and encouraged us. As my, family, my own family has grown now here, we've, we've had students in our home and it's a blessing. So there are opportunities for you. Uh, and let me say something really quick. We are, we are hampered this morning by the absence of a bulletin. If you're not normally impressed with that piece of paper, it had all of these things written down on it, and we had a printing problem. So take out a pencil, take out a pen. I really want you to make note of these things if the Lord prompts your heart. Um, Adopt an Aggie. There are 25 students right now, and we'll get more. 25 students right now in our, in our system who, who want a family. And uh, we're 25 families short. So families, there's an opportunity for you right there to invest uh, in, in relationships, to invest, invest in an opportunity. Uh, you can go online to the website, uh, grace-bible.org, to the events tab, and you'll find the opportunity there to sign up. Students, there's still opportunities for you to sign up there on the website as well. Uh, second thing that came up with the giveaway this year is the opportunity to invite an international student or more than one to dinner. Most international students will spend their entire time here as students and never see the inside of an American home. And if that could be a Christian American home, what a blessing for them and what a blessing for you. So again, if you'd like to have, uh, and the commitment is just all the students were told was one dinner in an American home. It just starts right there. That's, that's all we're asking you to do. This is a little more complex. You need to email Lindsay. There's not a tab on the website, but email Lindsay, and there's, there's the address right there, and she'll connect you with one of these uh, students. Right now, there are more than 60 students that we have not been able to place uh, in a home for dinner. So uh, jump on that opportunity. Great opportunity. Uh, just a rich blessing for you as well as for the student. I want you to take advantage of that. Invest your treasure. Grace is loaded with opportunities to support missionaries and to support missions. Right now, there's a unique opportunity to support college missions, to invest your treasure, and shh, don't tell anyone, but there actually is a reward on this earth 
for, for, for this one, okay? And that is uh, work projects. And there's the information for you. You can go to the website again. Under, it's under events. Uh, we need about 30 work projects. Families, homeowners, things that students come, they do the work for you, and you make a donation to college missions. The dates are October 4th and November 8th. Uh, there are opportunity. All the information is there on the website. So, uh, opportunity again to invest your treasure and also to to receive a little bit of reward uh, for that as well, as well as the relationship with the students when they come. It's 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 another great opportunity for a relationship. So, and there's more. You can as you're on the website, look around. There's plenty of opportunities to invest in the way that Brian was uh, sharing with us this morning. We want you to take advantage of those opportunities and help us move forward uh, in the ways that God has given us opportunity uh, to invest in this community and this world. So uh, take, take, a, take, a, take some time this week. Follow through on this, this, this prayer that we've just had and, uh, and look at those things and consider uh, what the Lord would have you do. I also want to invite you just as we close, uh, if there's something in terms of investing truth, if there's something, uh, some relationship, uh, a family member or a friend that you've been praying for to know Jesus, we want to just open up the front this morning and invite you to come down and pray. As we, as we conclude. If y'all are down here uh, and inclined to socialize a little bit, back it up a little bit, give some space here for the folks coming to pray. But if you want to come down and pray, I'll be here. I think some others will be here uh, to pray with you, or you can just come and, and just put that uh, in prayer, or maybe some of these other things the Lord's been laying on your heart uh, as we, as we uh, wrap up. So that's it. We're going we're gonna to say, uh, uh, let, you, let you go. And, and uh, as you do, remember uh, those opportunities that are before you. God bless you this morning.